Amen. I love the culminating line of that song. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, right? Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless stand before his, what? His throne. Hold that in your mind as we continue our study today. We're going to continue our study of this book of 2 Corinthians that we've been in for a while, and uh, we're going to jump back into a place in this book where Paul, in front of these Corinthians, in this church that he planted in the city of Corinth, and then left, okay, Paul's having a dispute with some false preachers and teachers, these guys who have come, these peddlers of a false gospel after Paul left, and they came with a different gospel, but more than that, they came also with a whole list of complaints against the Apostle Paul himself, and so he's off somewhere else planting another church, and he's getting wind back, you know, from this church in Corinth that he loves, that he spent a year and a half of his life investing and pouring into, that these guys have shown up not only with this other gospel, but with this whole list of complaints. And so as a part of this letter that he's writing to them, he's addressing that. And essentially what he's been doing in this part of the letter is this. He's come to the Corinthians, who he is going to defer to as the judge. You guys judge, and judge between us is the idea. And he said to them, look, take these peddlers of the false gospel and put them over here. Take me, the Apostle Paul, and put me over here. And now let's just run through their list. Let's go through all their stuff. Let's start with the gospel. That's where he started, and that really should be definitive of the whole thing, but he continued beyond that. He said here, however, theirs is a false gospel, mine is a true. Theirs is a gospel of death and condemnation because it requires you to work, and you can just never work enough. You can never do enough. Mine is a gospel of life. It's a gospel of the, of the righteousness of Christ given to us as a free gift. It's based solely on His perfect performance as opposed to the performance of, well, any of us. Theirs is attached to a covenant that is fading and indeed has faded out in glory. Mine is attached, he says, to a covenant that never ends of unfading glory. But more than that, Paul says, don't stop there. Now let's talk about character. Let's talk about integrity. Let's talk about transparency because they've raised that. And here's what I, Paul, have done. I have vetted their concerns against my own heart and conscience. And I've done it in community with some other guys who know me well. And I've said, is there any validity to any of this? No. He says, my conscience is clear before God and before man. So I'm feeling pretty good about that comparison, but let's continue. Let's talk about sufferings. These guys have suffered exactly nothing for Jesus. I have despaired of life again and again and again for the sake of the gospel so that I can bring the gospel to people like you in Corinth, he said. And more than that, let's compare the hope by which we live. What's their hope? Their own performance? Not much of a hope. Here's my hope. That life will not for me end in death. It will end in the return of Christ in resurrection. And there I will stand faultless before His throne. I will be judged, but not for my sin. Christ has been judged. I will be judged by what I've done with this life that God created, that God sustains, and that God at the expense of the life of His Son has utterly and wholly redeemed. How have you used your life to advance my cause, my agenda, my kingdom. And he said, here's my confidence that by the power of the Spirit of the Lord at work in me, I will receive the commendation and the blessing of my Savior, of my King. So compare us, he said. 
And today, as he continues this comparative conversation, he's going to say, now compare us in terms of the fruitfulness of our lives and ministry. In other words, here are these guys, put them over here. Here am I, Paul, put me over here. And just simply stand in the middle and ask yourself, all right, of the two here, who is actually leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ? Like, is it me, Paul, who is seeing tens of thousands of people come to faith in Jesus and who is planting churches all over the place? Or is it the peddlers of the false gospel who, as Paul's already indicated, don't even know Jesus themselves? Fruitfulness is the issue. And it's an incredibly relevant issue. Because fruitfulness is the goal, guys. And it's not just the goal for the Apostle Paul and these first century Corinthians and and everybody. No, no. It's my goal. It's your goal. Fruitfulness is the goal for every follower of Jesus. And what I love, love about this passage of Scripture that we're going to look at today is the Apostle Paul comes to us and says, hey, let me give you the two motivating factors behind fruitfulness. Here's what pushes forward. Here's what necessarily results in these two things. A fruitful life, which means, by the way, that if we're lacking in fruitfulness, because if we're just really honest, we're not all that moved by the cause of Jesus, you know, we're not all enthusiastic about the agenda of Jesus. Hey, Tom, if I'm just going to be truthful with you, okay, total transparency. Yeah, I don't really feel all that motivated to use and to spend my life to advance the cause of Christ as opposed to my own. If we are lacking in motivation to do those kinds of things. Well, then here's the problem. We're lacking in one of these factors. And the solution is to get back in touch with them, to allow them to lay hold of us, to be captured by them and transformed by them, and then turned around and spun back out into the world by the Spirit and community with one another to go off and do what we are made to do, which is to be fruitful for our King. It's to be fruitful for the gospel. So the first of these two factors we find actually in the first verse that we come to. As we pick up our study in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 11, where Paul says this, he says, therefore, and now here comes a very important word, he says knowing. Okay, here's why this is important. In the Bible, to know something means more than to know about something. You know about things that you read about in a book. You know you know about things that somebody explains to you and tells you about. I know about that intellectually, that's not what he's referring to. In the Bible, to know something means to know it experientially. It means to know it personally. It means to know it intimately. To give you kind of a strong example, Adam, we're told, knew his wife Eve, and guess what happened next? They had a child, okay? That's not something you read in a book. It's experiential. You know by experience. It's deep. It's different. So therefore, knowing what? Because this is factor number one. Motivating force number one, knowing the fear of the Lord. And you say, well, then what is that? Well, let's start with what it's not. It's not this cringing terror that we would have apart from Jesus, honestly, for all of the ways that we've taken the life that He created, the life that He sustained, the life that He's redeemed, and spent it on ourselves. The way that we have worshipped ourselves as opposed to Him. The way that we have violated His rules and you know all of that kind of stuff. All of those things that we don't even want anyone else to know. Okay, in the presence of Almighty God Himself is absolutely terrifying. That's not what we're talking about. Why? Because the Gospel is that that absolutely holy God humbled Himself and through a supernatural conception took upon Himself our humanity, walked among us, kept perfectly His own law 
in our place so that by faith in Him, His perfect obedience is credited to us as if we ourselves have done it, even though we didn't. He performed for us, and then at the end of that, what did He do? He took upon Himself all of our sin, all of our transgressions, all of the stuff that we'd look at and go, oh, good grief, if that showed up on this screen right now, I'd just crawl under the chair and out the door. He took all of that stuff upon Himself, and at the expense of His infinitely valuable, infinitely righteous life, He fully and completely paid the penalty for all of it, dying, being buried, and being raised, that He might defeat sin and death for us, so that... When the trumpet sounds, we'll be found in Him, dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before His throne. And when we stand before His throne, we stand in confidence. We stand knowing that we've come to the embrace of a Father who loves us so much. And He died to claim us, to find us, to redeem us, to cleanse us. There's no fear... Of, that's cringing in that sense in any of that. So the gospel removes that. But here's what it is a fear of. It is an awe, an overwhelming sense of awe in the presence of God and who He really is. Guys, who is He? I mean, do you think about that much? He is the Creator of everything that is. He is the one who by the power of His Word, and who is the living Word of God? It's Christ created everything, spoke the worlds into being, spun the stars and the galaxies that are innumerable, at least from our perspective, out into the heavens and out into the universe. And not only that, but He created us. We're totally knit us together in our mother's wombs. That's pretty personal. That's involved, isn't it? He sustains our every breath. He numbers out to us our every day. He gives to us every beat of our heart, every gift, every talent, every resource, every opportunity, everything that we have, everything that we are, every energy that we use, all of it, all of it, all of it, a gift from Him. And again, more than that, though we took all of those things and used them to worship ourselves in truth, to live for us, He clothed Himself in our humanity obeyed His own law for us, suffered and died that He might redeem us and take us. And so then if you think about it, whose life do our lives belong to? I mean, like, whose life is mine? Because it isn't mine. And yours isn't yours. It belongs to Him. And there is an overwhelming sense of awe when you actually acknowledge and see Him with the eyes of your heart by the power of the Spirit for who He really is. And here's what you recognize in this moment. This is not a being to be trifled with. This is not a being to be thought about occasionally. This is not a being to be treated casually. This is not a being to be tipped like a waiter at a restaurant. This is Almighty God. And if He came and appeared in this room right now, Christ in the flesh, there is not a person, believer or unbeliever, who would not immediately be on their face. That's who we're dealing with. And living in the fear of the Lord is living in light of the fact that that's who we're dealing with. And here's what that produces. Fruitfulness for the Gospel. Paul says, therefore, knowing by experience, the fear of the Lord, what do we do? We live a fruitful life. We pursue a fruitful ministry. We persuade, to use his words, others to do what? To believe in Jesus. That's the whole point. And so then if we're not using and spending our lives in such a way as to do that, 
what's the problem? Well, at least one of the problems is we haven't seen the Lord for who He really is. And we know that because we don't fear Him. And we know that because if we did fear Him, well, we would live differently. We don't fear the One before whom we will all one day stand, not cringing in terror because of our sin, but to give an account for the life that we think is ours, but that is actually His. And you say, well, how do you know that's what's going to happen? Because before Paul gave us this verse 11 that we picked up with, he gave us verse 10. So let me read verse 10 again. Because verse 11 starts with, therefore, meaning it flows right out of 10. He says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, not to be penalized for our sin. Christ did that. But why then? So that each one of us may receive what is due to us in terms of what? In terms of commendation from our Lord. Well done, good and faithful servant, or not. In terms of reward from our Lord. Here, or not. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due to us for what He has done in the body, the idea being to advance the cause or the agenda or the kingdom of Jesus as opposed to our own, whether, notice this, good or, and this is a heavy word, or evil. What does that mean? It means that when I take my life and I use it and spend it primarily to advance my own causes, my own agenda, and my own kingdom, it's not just not good, it's evil. Now, it's an evil that Christ died for, and when I stand before the Lord, I'll be very thankful that Christ has died for that evil. It's taken away, it's washed, it's taken care of, got it. But here's what else I will be. I will be standing there realizing what actually mattered and what actually matters. And all of my little causes and all of my little agendas and the little kingdom that I'm trying to build that is the kingdom of Tom is going to be dust, guys. It's not going to matter. It will all in that moment be completely reprioritized and reordered. And I will wish that I had leveraged everything in my life for His cause, for His agenda, and to advantage His kingdom. And I think Paul's kind of coming to us and going, hey, listen, no surprises. You know, I mean, like, I don't like to be surprised typically by things. So he's saying, let me tell you in advance how it ends. You stand before Him dressed in His righteousness, faultless because of the performance of Christ on your behalf. But there, you give an account for what you've done for His kingdom. And so he says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body to advance the cause agenda kingdom of Jesus, whether good or evil. And then he says, therefore... Here's what I, Paul, and this little band of brothers that I'm traveling with do. Knowing the fear of the Lord, this overwhelming sense of the awe of the one in whose presence we will stand. We're all about fruitfulness, man. That is our passion. That is our focus. We are singularly about persuading others to believe in Jesus. So the question that I've been wrestling with all week is, okay, how do I gain that experiential knowledge of the fear of the Lord so that 
I can express that in fruitfulness. And then when I stand before him, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless because of the performance of Christ on my behalf. And he says, Tom, what have you done with the life that I created, that I sustained, that I measured out every day of, every breath, every heartbeat? You get the idea that I redeemed at the expense of my... What did you do with that for my cause, my agenda, my kingdom? I have something to say. And how do I help you gain that experience as well? So the best answer that I could come up with is by the power of the Holy Spirit who must open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, not of our minds, our ears, our sensibilities spiritually, and through His Spirit inspired and given in perfect word. It's for you or for me to take you into that courtroom that one day we will all stand in, and it's to show you the King before whom we will all one day give an account. And we find that picture in Isaiah chapter 6. And I want you to realize as we move to Isaiah chapter 6 that this is not just a vision that God gave to Isaiah, but because it's recorded in the Bible, it's a vision that God gave to me. And it's a vision that God is giving also now to you. In other words, He's recorded it that we might see it. And not just see it, but experience it. It is very experiential. It captures all of the senses. Isaiah sees things. He hears things. He smells things. This smoke, he feels the room shake, you see. He tastes the coal brought to his mouth. And the reason that he writes it with this kind of detail is so that the Spirit can come along and through the faculty of our imagination allow us to see and smell and hear and taste and touch the very same things. God wants you to see Christ in this image. And we know that it's Christ because John and John 12 specifically says that this vision that Isaiah saw was a vision of Jesus. So then what is it? Isaiah says this in Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. He says that in the year that King Uzziah died, okay, what happened? He said, I saw the Lord. So there it is. And he's not just marking a date with this statement. He's not just saying, oh, just in case you're curious as to when that happened, it was when Uzziah died. Oh, okay, yeah, that was, no, no, no. What he's telling you is what's happening in his heart and his life and his mind, and not just in his heart and life and mind, but in all of his countrymen as well, because Uzziah, the king, had died, and that was a really big and unsettling deal. Uzziah had been king of Judah for 52 years. That's a lot more than eight and a whole lot more than four. He was probably the only king that Isaiah had ever known in the whole of his life, and most of the people of Israel as well, and more than that, he was a good king fabulously successful in many ways. He brought peace to his people. He expanded the territories of his people. He expanded and strengthened the borders of his people. Economic prosperity. Uzziah was awesome for the economy and everybody flourished economically as a result. And so then his death marks the beginning of a period of great political and economic uncertainty in the nation of Israel. And in that uncertainty... Isaiah comes to the temple to pray, no doubt, for his country, which just as an aside, is what we're also commanded to do. Please don't forget to do that. But he comes with a prayer, and I mean, if I can just put the prayer in his mouth, I'm pretty sure it went something like this. Dear God, I am incredibly unsettled, and here's what I think the answer is. I think the answer is that we need the right leader, and we need the right laws, and we need the right this, and we need the right that. And then I want you to notice, however, how everything gets reordered and reprioritized, how all of that goes up in smoke, how everything changes about his prayer and everything else when he enters into the presence of the Lord. 
He says that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And where was the Lord and what was he doing? Was he pacing about nervously, you know, wringing his hands, going, good grief, Uzziah is dead. Now what are we going to do? And No. He was located in the very same place that he's located presently, doing the very same thing that he's doing at this moment. He is ruling undisturbed from the throne of the universe. Isaiah says that in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, and here he is, sitting upon a throne, high and exalted, high and lifted up. And then he says, and then the train of his robe filled the temple. Which is kind of a curious statement to me, because it seems to me that if you actually saw the Lord and then you were going to try to describe him, yeah, I mean, is that what you'd talk about? You know, I mean, I think I'd talk about his face and his eyes and his beard and his hair and his hands and his feet. And I don't know, he's about 6'2", 220. I don't know, it's a, he's wearing a robe, so it's hard to, hard to guess on the weight. But, you know, in other words, you would try to describe him in such a way that somebody could go, oh, that's what he looks like. But instead, Isaiah comes into the presence of the Lord and he says, listen, forget about all of that. Here's the only thing you need to know. You just, you just need to know that the train of his robe completely filled the temple. Why is that significant? Because in the ancient Near East, the robe of the kings spoke of their majesty. The robe of the kings spoke of their glory. The robe of the kings spoke of their mastery over their enemies. Why? Because when a king would defeat another king, he would take the robe of the defeated king and he would cut a piece off and add it to his own. Christ is the king of kings. He's the Lord of Lords. There is no enemy, no rival that has not been utterly and completely defeated by Him. His robe is so great that it completely envelops the whole of the place that Isaiah and that one day we will enter into. Which means that there is no room for the glory or for the majesty of anything or of anyone else in the presence of the living Christ. My agendas, my causes... My kingdom, it's like I see him and go, oh, yeah, no, let's not even talk about that. Let's just get that out of the way. That's embarrassing. Let's just, no, let's not even discuss it. Let's pretend like those don't exist. Let's, really? And there's no room for the fear of anything or anyone else either. I think that's helpful. Guys, the Lord is on his throne. And he will not do things the way that you and I think he ought to every time. But he will do what's right. And so again, Isaiah says that in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And then he says, above him stood the seraphim. It's a plural word. It's angels. And it means literally burning ones. He said, each of these had six wings, and with two he covered his face, unwilling to gaze upon the unveiled glory of the living Christ. And with two he covered his feet, or really his lower parts, unwilling to expose his creatureliness in the presence of the living Christ. And with two he flew, ever ready to do the will of the living Christ upon his command. And one called to another, and the idea being they're stationed in different places, and they're shouting across the room. It's antiphonal. And what did they cry? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And Isaiah says, and the foundations of the threshold of this temple, which to the Jewish first century mind, or actually far earlier than that century mind, was completely inviolable and the most immovable object in the whole of the universe. What happened? It moved. 
The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And so then now for the first time in this vision, Isaiah speaks, and and he says something like this. Dear Lord, I'm completely unsettled. I'm really worried about our country, and so I think the thing that we need is a new leader, and we need this, and we need that, and this issue's at stake, and this issue's at stake, and this issue's as he doesn't do any of that. Because what happens is he enters into the presence of the real king, and everything's reprioritized and ordered, and all of a sudden he understands what the real issue is, therefore what the real remedy is, and therefore what the real mission is. And he confesses it immediately, and he realizes that he, first and foremost, is the one who has this problem. He says in verse 5, and again, he's a prophet, so he speaks an oracle of woe, of doom, upon himself, having seen the Lord. He says, woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, he says, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And here's how I know that, because my eyes have now seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And what he's not saying is that he and his countrymen need a napkin. They don't need a clean mouth in that sense. They need a clean heart. That's the point. And Jesus makes the point in all the connections for us in Matthew 15, verse 18, when he says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this is what defiles a person. For out of the heart comes what? We all have one. So let's read this humbly. Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. We could keep going, right? Selfishness. I mean, there's so much we could add to the list by experience. These are what defile a person. So Isaiah goes into the temple thinking that his greatest need and that of his countrymen is political in nature. And he realizes, oh, no, wait a minute. My greatest need and that of my countrymen, everyone, everyone really is a moral and spiritual one which looks to a different remedy, and that is the gospel. And what we really need is revival. What we really need is to go out into all the world in the fear of the Lord before whom we will one day stand to give an account, not for our sin Jesus paid for that, but for the life that God owns and how we've used and spent it and to take the gospel to the nations. So again, Isaiah sees Jesus for who he really is, and he says, woe is me because I'm lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. But the story does not end there, because this is the Lord that he's confessing to. And that inspires grace by Christ. Every time. It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar of sacrifice is the point. It's where the blood of the sacrificial lamb, who is the Lord himself, if you will, has been spilled. The price has been paid, and with it he touched my lips, which is you know, emblematic of his heart. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And now that Isaiah has been made clean, Jesus now speaks. And he says this, Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, it's entirely missional, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And so then Isaiah said, well, I don't know what's involved, you know. I mean, I'm unwilling to at least consider it. 
I can throw a little something at this, I think, maybe. I don't know. I mean, where do you want me to go? Like, what, 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 what is the mission exactly? What is it going to require? How much is this going to cost? Is there going to be a reimbursement for any of this stuff? Do I get health insurance for this? Is it for a 401k here? Do I get to take the family? Do I have to leave the family? Like, what's involved in this so that I can consider this mission of yours against my cause, my agenda, the kingdom that is me? No, none of that matters. That's gone. That's humiliating. Well, let's not even talk about that. Let's just, we'll just put that box behind me somewhere and just hide it because I've seen the king, see? So I don't care how long it takes. It doesn't matter how much it costs. Oh, this is going to be inconvenient. Okay, well, but I've seen the Lord, so thinking that's not an issue at this point. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Isaiah says, don't know anything about it, but I'm in. Here I am. The one you created. The one you've sustained. The one you've redeemed. The one you've revealed yourself to. Send me. And like Paul, Isaiah is sent. And like Paul, Isaiah went. And so then what's the question for us? The question is, what about us? Like, are we going? Because here's the deal. We have been sent. Don't miss that. What are the parting words of Christ? Go ye therefore into all the world. You know this. And make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Okay? That's not unclear. And then here's what the Lord puts at the end of that sentence. A period. That's it. No little asterisk, you know, like a little footnote that says down, unless it would be really inconvenient and cramp your style, you know? Unless maybe it's going to be costly to you. It's none of that. It's just go. And you're like, well, what does that mean? What's involved? What's it? Well, then that's the wrong question. Well, am I going to have to go to Somalia? I don't know. But that's the wrong question. I'll tell you what, you can start right where you're at with the family that you have, with the, with the place that you work, with maybe the business that you own, with the network of friends that God and His goodness toward them and you has given to you and entrusted to you to be a message bearer to them. You have a ministry of reconciliation as you're going to see in just a second. Usually we don't have to move to Somalia to do this kind of thing, but somebody does have to move to Somalia. And here's the deal. If you do, okay. Such is the greatness of God. And such is His great sacrifice. Look, if we're not moved, if we're not enthusiastic, if we're not motivated, here's the problem. At least one of two, we haven't seen the Lord for who He really is. Because when we do, we appropriately fear Him. And that inspires necessarily action on our part. And it's gospel action. And so again, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, here we go, we persuade others to believe in Jesus. So that's driving force or motivating factor number one. But then in verse 14, he gives us driving factor number two. When he says this, For the guilt that I feel whenever I hear a message like this, okay, controls me. That's not it. It's not guilt-motivated. It's not shame-based. It's not obligatory in the sense that, well, I feel obligated, so I guess I have to go do this now. <laughs> oh, that's my duty. Well, I'm a dutiful person, and so I'll... Guys, he says, for the love of Christ 
controls us. Okay, how many of you played video games? Just raise your hand. Go ahead, it's okay. It's all right. There's no shame. We've all done it. Yeah, okay. You know the controller? Yeah, it operates everything on the screen, doesn't it? The love of Christ controls us. But why does it control you, Paul? Well, because we have concluded this. That one, what one? That one who was on the throne? who stood up from his seat on the throne, who disrobed and took off his garments, who clothed himself in our humanity, who came into this world to walk amongst our filth and to assume it to himself that he might put it to death in his own body. That one, he says, has died for all who believe in him is the point. Therefore, he says, here is the irresistible necessary conclusion. Therefore, all who believe in him have likewise done what? We've died, but to what? No, no, to whom? To ourselves, to our causes, to our agendas, to our kingdoms. We've died And He, Jesus, He says, died for all so that, just in case you're wondering, those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. You say, all right, so so what exactly does that mean? It means that if we're not moved, if we're not enthusiastic, if we're not motivated about the causes and agenda and kingdom of Christ, more so than our own, that A, we've not only not appropriately seen Him and therefore been inspired by the fear of Christ before whom we will stand, but B, we have not truly been captured by the transforming love of this God who is not just the God of the throne, But who for you, for me, for us, became the God of the cross? Because here's what happens when the love of Christ controls you. When you are captured by that, it inspires, it engenders necessarily within you a love for Him in return that is so grateful, that is so powerful, that is so thankful, that is so amazing, that is so overwhelming that you place Him before yourself. That you suddenly go, you know what? This life actually belongs to you. So how do you want to use and spend it? What can we do to advance you? Even if it's at my expense. And so then Paul concludes with this, verse 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, so if anybody has claimed the Christ of the throne and of the cross... Well, then what? He is a new creation. And the old way, the point being of living for oneself, okay, has passed away. And behold, the new way of living now for whom? For the one who owns us, that is Jesus, has come. And all of this, he says, is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, did for us what we could not do for ourselves, and gave to us what? The ministry of reconciliation, that is to say, that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us and nobody else the message of reconciliation, which is the gospel. Therefore, who are we as followers of Jesus? We are ambassadors for Christ. You're like, no, 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 I'm an accountant, or I'm a realtor, or I'm a, I'm a contractor, or I'm an entrepreneur. I don't know, those are things you do. And those are things that you can use as an ambassador for Christ. But but who you are is an ambassador for Jesus. That's it. 
Therefore, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ. That's who we are. And through the proclamation of the gospel, what is God doing? He is making his appeal to the people in our homes, to the people in our offices, to the people in our schools, to the people in our neighborhoods, to the people in this city, to the people in this nation, and to the people in the world through us. And so then, since Paul is such a great ambassador, that's his heart. Notice what he says. He says, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. How? Through faith in Jesus. By bringing Him your sin and and bringing Him yourself (laughs) and saying, I've made a mess here, so I can't fix it. And, And knowing that He has. Be reconciled to God, He says, because for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. So bottom line, you know, fruitfulness is the goal. And if we're lacking in fruitfulness, because we, you know, we're just not moved or enthusiastic or motivated, and Paul's coming and going, I think I know that the problem is, so then the problem is that you haven't really seen Jesus for who He is. You're not dealing with Him as the person that He is, the being that He is, and, and you've not been fully captured by His love. Because if and when you do, and if and when you are, the irresistible response then is, you know, I live less and less for me. <laughs> and I learn to live more and more and more for Him. So that in the final analysis and on the final day, when we stand dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless before His throne because of the performance of Jesus, we get the commendation that for forever we'll be thankful for and the reward, whatever that will be, and I don't know what it will be, I just know that it will never rust and it will never be taken away that we're longing for. So what do you do then? I think you meditate on the cross of the Christ of the cross and the Christ of the throne. You pursue Him and you allow that to transform you. So with that in mind, let me ask you, first of all, have you been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ? Because that's the gospel. It is that He did it all for you, and that's a good thing because He alone could. That's it. And all you need to do is receive what He's offering. Forgiveness and eternal life. But do it knowing that in exchange, He takes your life. The one who gave His takes yours, and that's a good thing. That's a wonderful thing. It brings meaning and purpose to all that you do for Him. And in the end, He rewards that. Secondly, how fruitful are you? Like, I mean, if you have faith in Jesus, how fruitful are you? And examine in particular, how are you actually using and spending your life in real ways, in such a way as to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus? And what are you not doing that you know that you should be doing? Because every time you hear a sermon like this, you know, the Lord's going, and you know what you're supposed to be doing. I mean, at least that's my experience. That you'll wish you did in the end when you stand before Him and all the things that you fear and love more than Him are just like, whew, let's not even talk about that because they've been put in their proper place in light of who He is. Thirdly, who or what do you fear in life? Really. Because that moves you. And I think seeing Jesus on His throne should cure us of all of these other fears. And lastly, Who or what do you love in life? Because seeing Jesus on His throne should create in us a love for Him that is greater than our love for anything or anyone else. Okay, so fruitfulness is the goal. 
And I want you to examine your loves and your fears in light of the Christ of the throne and the Christ of the cross before you come to the table this morning. So let's pray. Father, we thank You for our Lord and for our Savior. We thank You, God, that in Your great and overwhelming love, You did not leave us to suffer the consequences of our own sin, of our own self-worship, of all the ways that we've rejected You in favor of ourselves to pursue our puny little agendas and things and kingdoms and whatnot. But instead, You overcame and overwhelmed them through the life and sufferings, through the death and burial, through the resurrection of the Holy One who is the Lord Christ. Lord, we praise You for Him. Give us a vision of Him that we might fear Him appropriately, that we might gain perspective on the whole of our lives and all that we're involved in and not. Lord, and give us a vision of Your love for us too, poured out on the cross. Do these things, we pray, for the spiritual good of Your people and for the advancement of Your kingdom in us and through us we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I've commented on in the past, um, in communion, the gospel is also very sensory. You know, just like the vision was sensory. You know, the Lord preaches the gospel to our senses here too at this table. He gives us physical emblems of the sacrifice of Jesus. The body broken is the bread. The blood spilled is the, in our case, juice, grape juice. It's like He's capturing all of the different aspects of us. He's preached to our ears and hopefully with our spiritual eyes we've beheld Him. But, but even as we hold these elements, we behold Him in some sense and we feel Him in some sense and we taste Him in some sense and we ingest Him in some sense. Not in the sense that we think this is His literal body and blood, but but in the sense that we believe that the Lord meets with us spiritually at this table. And so take some time before you come to the table and just do business with the Lord. Talk to Him about your loves and fears. Talk to Him about fruitfulness and or lack thereof. Ask Him you know, to reveal Himself to you in this act. Confess your sins and then leave them there. Okay? Leave them there. And come forward and receive from this table in joy it should send you out in joy and in power. If you're not a believer in Jesus, just know that this is a table for believers in Jesus. Sorry, I don't mean to be exclusionary or anything, but, but don't come to the table, but instead, just consider what the Lord is offering to you. If you're a believer in Jesus and you're not living in good relationship with another Christian and you've not done what you could do, at least within reason, to make that right, don't come to the table and work that out with them. And then come next month, I had a mom tell me that her, her teenage son said to her after the first service today, he said just before they came up, he said, you know, we're not living in good relationship right now, so we should work that out before we go to the table. And I thought, how awesome is that? And they did, and they came forward. It's a unified table, but that implies that we live in unity with each other, and it should provoke us to do those kinds of things. But otherwise, by all means, Come. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, He took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, what? You proclaim the Lord's death until He comes again until we stand before Him. So I'll pray and you guys take your time and
Come when you're ready. Father, we thank you for the gospel, and we thank you for the gospel that we see proclaimed through this table. We pray, Lord, that, that you might speak to us and that you might meet with us here. Heal us, forgive us. Lord, strengthen and encourage us that we might live better for you, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.